Persistence through failure. Everything happens for a reason, and sometimes that reason is you just made a bad choice. But the good news is, is you can almost always correct that with your next choice. Before we get into today's episode, I want to mention today's best ever partner and give you a free gift. And that partner is Fun That Flip, and they're going to be giving you a free deal analysis spreadsheet. You know who Fun That Flip is, don't you? Because you're a loyal best ever listener. They've been a sponsor on the show. Matt Rodak, the founder of Fun That Flip, has been on the podcast multiple times, giving us his insight on the online lending process. Fun That Flip provides fast, reliable funding for your house flip projects. They're an online platform, makes the application process entirely easy, and they've got a whole bunch of experts on their team who can help you get funding in 24 hours and close within as few as seven days. And all of you best ever listeners, you're getting a free spreadsheet to help you analyze your projects. Go to fundthatflip.com forward slash best ever. That's fundthatflip.com forward slash best ever. And you'll get a free deal analysis tool. It'll help you provide a scope of work for your projects, create the scope of work, analyze the profitability of the project or if it's not profitable you need to know that too and make a determination on the max purchase price super important you can print out all the detailed reports and that will help you get your deals funded faster go to fundnetflip.com forward slash best ever get that free analysis tool fundnetflip.com forward slash best ever best ever listeners welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show i'm joe fairless this is the world's longest running daily real estate podcast we don't get into any fluffy stuff we only talk about the best advice that moves your real estate investing business forward with us today andrew cushman how you doing andrew i'm doing well glad to be on well, nice to have you on the show, my friend. And a little bit about Andrew. He is the principal at Vantage Point Acquisitions. He's a full-time multifamily investor. He's purchased over 1,500 units in the last five years. Chemical engineer by trade. He was a chemical engineer for seven years, quitting his job to flip single-family homes full-time. Then in 2011, purchased his first apartment complex, which was 92 units. And 2,500 miles away from where he lived. Have to hear about that. Based in Los Angeles, California. With that being said, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on? Yeah, sure. That was uh, actually a really good recap. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I went to school for a chemical and engineering degree because I wanted to run my own business and be an investor, but I didn't know what that was. So I just figured, hey, I'll get a degree to where I can at least get a decent job and got married and it took us about seven years to figure out what our own business would be, and that was flipping houses. So I got our first deal. I quit my job, and started. we flipped full-time for about four years here in Southern California. And then in 2010, we said, you know, this is going really well, but it's not going to last forever. So what's the next big thing? What's probably about to start a big up cycle? And we said, well, you know, that's apartments. So we sought out a mentor and jumped in. Our first deal was 92 units on the other side of the country out in Georgia, and we've been doing it full-time ever since. How'd you find the deal so far away from where you're living? See, that was early 2011 when we purchased that one. We started looking in 2010. We went to LoopNet and just started looking and saying, okay, what brokers have the most listings in these markets. And then I just start calling those brokers and figure, you know what, if they've got the most listings on LoopNet, they're probably some of the more active brokers and those would be the right guys to talk to. 
Okay, and you're in Los Angeles. What part of Georgia was? Did you say Atlanta? That first one was in Macon, which is about an hour and a half south of Atlanta. Okay. How did you familiarize yourself with this market living far away? I would talk to the brokers, and then I also, we researched and created a pretty extensive list of property management companies that covered the area. And I would call and interview them, number one, to find property management companies, but then also just to learn about. And then companies like Axiometrics and MPF Research and Bercadia, they do all these great research reports. And a lot of them are expensive, but what I found is, is when I'm talking with brokers and looking at deals, I'll say, hey, could you send me any research reports you have on this city or this neighborhood or whatever? And they're more than happy to send it to you. So I would just get reams of useful information on the market, and then I would go out there personally as well. When you're talking to the property management companies and you're interviewing them both for a partnership role as well as just market knowledge, what are some specific questions that you ask them? Actually, I have a, a document that's probably got 20-something questions on there, but I'm asking them questions eat? like, yeah, well, yeah, I'll be happy to send it to you. Yeah, if you email it to me, I'll put it in the show notes as a link. Okay, great. I'm asking them questions you know, such as I specialize in, at the, in the beginning, with C properties, but now more like B properties. And so I'll ask them, so, and I won't give them the answer. I'll say, hey, what kind of properties do you guys specialize in? So if they say, oh, we primarily do A, then I know they're probably not the best fit for us. I want them to say we focus mostly on B or C or whatever. Then I'll ask them questions such as, well, are you strictly third-party or do you own and do third-party management, right? If they own a property a quarter mile down the street from the one I'm hiring them to manage, it's just human nature that they're probably going to favor the one they own. I mean, most of the good ones will try not to do that, but realistically, it's probably going to happen. And you could accidentally alert them to the great deal you're getting, and they may say, hey, we want to compete for this. Mm-hmm. So I'll ask questions like that. I'll ask them, you know, what kind of due diligence services do you provide? How do you study markets? How do you determine what is a good area and not a good area? What is their structure as far as management? So you've got you know, the on-site people, but who do they report to? And usually that's a regional. And the question I like to ask is, well, how many properties does that regional oversee? Because if it's six to eight, that regional is probably going to be able to give you a fair amount of attention. If it's 15, something like that, then that regional is going to be running around like crazy and it's probably going to affect just how much attention your property is going to get. So there's a whole long line of questions like that. You know, how do they manage renovations, et cetera, that kind of covers the gamut of what they're going to be helping us with. One question you asked, how do you determine a good area and not a good area? What's a good answer and what's a bad answer? A good answer would be, well, we look at crime rates, we look at population growth, we look at job growth, we look at median income, and we look at what our companies going into the area or leaving the area. And we send our people to go investigate specifically. So if I call and say, hey, I'm looking at this property on this street or this address, ideally they already know it. And like, oh, yeah, that's a great area because of this, this, and this. Or at the minimum, like, you know, we'll have our one of our managers go drive it. You know, bad answer, and frankly, most companies that have – gotten to the point where I've already screened them so that they've made it to the list where I think they're worth calling. Most of them aren't going to give a a true bad answer. But a bad answer would just be, 
probably more vague. Oh, yeah, that, that area is decent. Or you know, they can't give any reasons as to why it's a good area or bad area. Or if I get the sense that they're just kind of leading me along and saying, oh, yeah, that's a great area, so that I'll buy the deal and give them the business. Does that kind of make sense, hopefully? It does make sense. Will you tell us about the last deal you bought? Sure. Last deal we purchased, we closed into this past November. It was in a small town outside of Augusta, Georgia. It was actually an off-market deal. Ended up working directly with the seller. And 96 units built right around 1990. And it is a, at the time, purchased a B-minus deal, value-add. It's in a town where the population growth has been 100% over the last 10 years and is expected to double again over the next 10 years. They're building uh, hospitals, they're building new schools, they're building tons of single-family houses, but what they're not building is a lot of apartments because the county has put a moratorium on new construction. And there's only four other apartment complexes in the market, and they're all Class A. We're the only Class B. And so the average rent of every option other than our apartment complex is 60 to 80% higher than where we are. So we're doing a moderate renovation. We're going to bump the rents up, bridge that gap, and just be the only B option in town. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. How did you get the off-market deal? It's kind of funny because I mentioned LoopNet earlier, and and we all joke that LoopNet's kind of the the garbage bin of deals, which in in many cases it is because brokers naturally will call their good clients first. But I still have an alert set up on LoopNet because it's a good way just to kind of monitor what's going on out there. And so this property showed up in my email inbox as an alert, and I just pulled it up and said, well, that's a nice-looking property. It's a good area. And so I'm like, well, who's listing this? And I looked at it and said, well, hey, it's, it's actually for sale by owner. The actual principal is selling it. So I'm like, let me call this guy. So I called him up, and that afternoon he sent me the information. I ran the numbers. It looked great. That was on a Friday afternoon, Monday morning. I had some of our local team members drive out, look at the property. They gave a great report. Made an offer that day. He called. We negotiated. Accepted the he accepted the LOI that afternoon, and by Friday we were under contract. A week from when you saw it, you were under contract. Wow. How's that conversation go? You look at the property on Friday. You make the call. Then you have your team go out there on Monday. What's the conversation like before your team goes out there and you're talking to the owner? So you pick up the phone and then. What's it sound like? First, I'll just say, hey, yeah, I, I saw your listing for the property. Could you just give me a little bit of the story on it, how long you've owned it, why are you selling it, et cetera, and then just kind of let them go from there. And then, you know, depending on what they say, I'll, I'll dig in. And the main thing I want to get is an actual rent roll and an actual trailing 12, because from those two things, I can determine 90% of what I need to know. And fortunately, the seller on this property was a great guy, very candid, very honest, didn't try to hide anything. And that's part of why we were able to just move at such an accelerated pace. He really was a good seller. And so I probably talked to him for 30, 45 minutes, and I guess felt like I had a good feel of the operations, the opportunity, how they had run it, what some potential challenges may be, what the strengths of the property were. And then, again, he sent me the trailing 12 financials, which is on three twelve by 12 the breakdown of, of how the property's operating. So I talk with him and, and get as, as much of the information as I can and get comfortable. And with that conversation and him sending the rent roll and trailing 12 financials, I got comfortable enough to say, okay, this is worth sending my team to look at as quickly as possible. 
and you were had under contract within a week that it went on LoopNet, but I'm sure he does have friends in that market that he talked to prior to going through the whole process of putting on LoopNet. Why do you think it hadn't been purchased prior to you all purchasing it? I don't know entirely. I do know he had another higher offer, but he felt like we had a higher likelihood of performing and performing more quickly than the other offer. Also, he was out of state. He wasn't like a local person who lives in the Augusta area and is super well-connected and just kind of floated out there. He was actually out in the Midwest and just put it on LoopNet. Mm-hmm. And I was fortunate that I was watching that day. Wow. Okay. When you do a deal like that, do you use your own equity or do you bring in investors or a combination? All of our deals are syndicated. So the vast majority of the equity is from pool of private investors that are built up over time. And then as sponsors, the amount of equity that we put in varies. It's actually been lower lately because we've had more demand than we've had room for equity. So in those cases, we'll back out and let other investors get in. Let's use a specific example at 96 unit. How did you structure it with investors? As the sponsor, we have a a carve out of uh, 25%. So what that basically means is out of all the Profits from operation, from selling it down the road and all that, 75% that goes to investors and 25% goes to the sponsor, assuming that the preferred return is met, of course. And the structure is pretty simple. As a sponsor, which is, of course, me and then our other principals, we're managing it, we're running the rehab, and it's our responsibility to make that property as profitable as possible. And then the investors are essentially buying shares in the LLC that owns the property. And so it's a single asset entity, meaning that LLC was created solely for the purpose of purchasing that property, and that's the only thing that LLC will own. And it's a 506B offering, which just means it's private. We don't solicit or or make it public. And when an investor says, you know, I want to put $100,000 in this deal out of the, I think that one was $2.3 million in equity. What they're actually buying is shares in the LLC, and then that makes them a passive investor, a passive owner, and that entitles them to the 75% share of profits and distributions and, and everything else. And what's the preferred return on that one? On that one, it's 9%. 9%. And how long are you projecting to have the property? That one we actually did on a 10-year hold. Most of our properties are 4 to 7, but that one is, uh, it's, it said it was 1990, which is a little bit newer for us, and it's in such a good area and good location that we really feel like it made sense to be a longer-term hold, and some of our investors were actually asking for a longer-term hold. So you determine the hold period based on the age and the location? Yeah, those are two huge factors. So, for example, most of our properties, when we go in, we do a fairly significant renovation, so that's in good condition inside and out within a year or so of us holding it. But an older property, say maybe something built in the 70s, you know, within five years or so, that's going to start wearing out. And you're going to get to the point where it starts to need to be recapitalized again. And so a lot of times our business plan is to sell before we get to that point to let the new buyer come in and recapitalize it, and that would be their value-add opportunity. But this property we're going to do a little bit higher-end renovation that will last longer. And again, it's just in such a good area and such a good location that it makes sense to a long-term hold. And then part of it is the growth there is based on things that aren't really 
dependent on the overall economy. So even if we do get a recession in a couple of years or, or whenever, that area should still continue to grow. How many units or properties, probably be easier for you to say, do you have in the Atlanta area? In the Atlanta area, I think it's seven properties. Okay. Is that the bulk of your portfolio? Yeah, I sold off about 500 units in Dallas and the Fort Worth area. I still have a 96-unit property in Houston. And then mostly everything else is in Georgia and North Florida at this point. And how did you pick North Florida and what market? We are in a tertiary market called Panama City Beach, Florida, one of the most popular vacation destinations in the country. It was the same thing. We got, I call it a post-market deal where the property had been well-marketed by a broker, had been under contract at a much higher price, and it fell out. And even though we were much lower by that point, the seller had their loan due. And so they felt like we'd performed, so they went ahead and accepted our price. We got a great deal on the property. And again, it's in a really good area. The median income there very easily supports the rents that we are now getting. Next door, they're building single-family houses. And then next door to that, they just completed building a brand-new A-plus apartment complex. And when we bought our property there, it was a C, or kind of a run-down C. And so we brought it up to a B-minus. And even after raising rents 25-plus percent, we can barely keep up with the demand because it's the only option in between rundown C's and brand new A's. So again, we found a strong growing market where we can position ourselves to almost have no competition and bridge a gap and really be rewarded for it. You've mentioned a couple times that you've gotten a property even though there was a higher offer. And the reason why is because the seller felt like you and your company would perform what do you provide and or say to the seller to give them that comfort level? At this point, after doing it for five or six years, part of it is is we do have a reputation, a good reputation. We've never failed to close anything, so the brokers will vouch for us. But I think even bigger than that is just we make a point to always be true to our word, even in the little things. So if I'm talking with a broker or a seller and I say, I'm going to call you back tomorrow, I call them back tomorrow, even if I don't have the answer. I'll call and say, hey, we're looking at this. Unfortunately, I didn't get the information I needed, so I'll be back in touch with you Thursday. And then I make sure I follow up with them on Thursday. If I say I'm going to send a document, I send the document. I've had sellers say, wow, I'm really impressed with how you just do what you say you're going to do. And so if you do that on the little things, it builds confidence that you're going to do it on the big things. And so we really make a point to do that. So that would be the reputation with the broker, certainly, and they vouch for you. And then also, once you get into the process, the seller is pleasantly surprised or their thoughts were reinforced that, yes, they're going to do what they say they're going to do. What do you provide with an LOI to give the seller information about your company? Our LOI, I've seen a lot of them where it's just kind of like a one-page deal. Here's our price and whatever. So ours is actually five pages. We try to lay everything out so the seller feels like, okay, these guys are being candid with us up front. So we say, here's the list of documents we're going to want if we get into contract. Here's how extensions would be handled if it's needed. And so we do all of that. So we try to be very upfront. In addition to that, there's a paragraph at the end, like let's say we're buying a property in Georgia, and we'll say, hey, we own X amount of units in Georgia. We own one 20 minutes down the road. We've recently qualified for this many Fannie Mae loans, this many Freddie Mac loans. 
etc., and try to give them a quick history of, of what we've been doing and that we are active and real buyers. And then they can always go to our website, too, and kind of see our current portfolio. And then in Georgia, we're pretty well known now, so brokers will, will vouch for us on top of what we put in the LOI. What is your best real estate investing advice ever? Ooh, um, I would say persistence through failure. Everything happens for a reason, and sometimes that reason is you just made a bad choice. But the good news is, is you can almost always correct that with your next choice. Going way back to the beginning, I mentioned that I started off in single-family flipping. Well, how I did that was cold calling people in pre-foreclosure. I was an engineer. I was not good on the phone. Um, <laughs> I, my wife thought, obviously we got past it, but like her, my wife, when we were first getting to know each other, thought I didn't like her that much because she <laughs> called me on the phone and I was so bad talking on the phone that she had to make a list of things. I found this out later, of course. She actually would call me with a list of things to keep the conversation going, right? That's how bad I was. <laughs> So I go into a business that relies on cold calling people in financial distress, right? They're not happy you're calling. That's not a fun conversation. So it took me 4,576 phone calls to get my first deal. So that's 4,575, in a sense, failed calls. But I wanted it that bad and just persisted through a lot of failure, a lot of rejection, and kept going. And so that would be, I mean, there's, there's a lot of pieces, but I, that would definitely be one that I'd say is persist through failure if, if you want it bad enough and make it happen. And now looking at where you came from, the 4,575 failed phone calls to now, what's your portfolio worth? I think the last time I added up is about 65 million, something like that. Nice progress over five years, you said? Five years in the multifamily, yes. Five years in multifamily. And how long did you do fix and flip? About four years. And there was a little bit of overlap when we were doing our first apartment deal, but once we got that done, we jumped into apartments full-time. You ready for the best ever lightning round? I am. Let's do it. All right. First, a quick word from our best ever partners. Remember to get your free deal analysis tool for your flips at fundthatflip.com forward slash best ever. That's F-U-N-D-T-H-A-T-F-L-I-P.com forward slash best ever. It will detail your scope of work, help you analyze if the project's profitable, and make a determination on the max purchase price. Fundthatflip.com forward slash best ever. Best ever listeners, it is here. Well, it's almost here. February 24th and 25th. The conference, the best ever conference. Have you signed up yet? Oh, if you haven't, you better sign up right now. It's going to sell out. Besteverconference.com. I'm going to be there. A bunch of the guests who you've heard interviewed on the show are going to be there. Just go to besteverconference.com and look at all the speakers that you're going to hear from that will help you move your business forward in 2017. I want to meet you in person. The best ever guests who are speaking at this event want to meet you in person. And people who haven't been interviewed on this podcast who are speaking at the conference, they want to meet you in person. Go to besteverconference.com. Best ever book you've read? How to Win Friends and Influence People. Best ever personal growth experience and what did you learn from it? Buying that first 92-unit property on the other side of the country. It was 75% vacant. It was our first deal. And we needed to raise $1.2 million. I underestimated how challenging it was going to be to raise $1.2 million back in early 2011. 
I underestimated how tough it would be to manage the rehab on that. And so a lot of learning experience came out of it. It did end well. We did actually sold it last year profitably, but it was very much a growth and learning experience. What are a couple things that you do differently now that you didn't do on that deal? We have a, a very specific checklist for screening properties based on the strength of the market and demographics. So we check median income, we check crime rates, we check flood maps, and a handful of other things that partially grew out of that. For renovations, before we go hard on our deposit, once we're under contract, I have contractor bids, so it's not just me. I mean, at this point, I can walk through a property and have a pretty good estimate, but on top of that, I have contractors doing me bids so that when we finalize our budget, I know really well what the rehab is going to be. And then also tracking the renovation. On that first deal, I didn't do a good job of tracking it. And what I mean is, is how much are we spending on each project versus what we budgeted? Mm-hmm. Whereas now, I have spreadsheets, and every month, the property management company has to send me a spreadsheet with all of the CapEx invoices. They submit that to me. Then we track that versus the budget. So it's a very strict and well-controlled process. And so that has brought our most recent rehabs. We've either come in at budget or under budget, and we've been buying in the right areas. And so a lot came out of that. And then also just what it takes to raise money and what investors need and how to serve them best. Do you use any particular software programs? For tracking the renovation, I really find Excel works. It's simple. Our property managers understand it, and that's served us well. Best ever deal you've done? We purchased, I guess it was July of 2014, we bought a 122-unit property in the Atlanta area for $2.4 million. We put about 940 in renovations into it. And then with soft costs and everything, I think our total basis is about 3.5. So this fall was about 1.1 of investor equity. This fall, it appraised for 5.4. And then so if you were to deduct 6% for sales costs, if we were to sell it, that would leave about 2.5 million in equity. So that means all of investors in two years' time would see 120% profit. And then that's on top of the distributions we've been making for the last two years. Best ever way you like to give back? My wife and I donate financially to quite a few different charities. And then there's also a nonprofit that one of my friends and mentors, Tim Rhodes, started started called One Life Fully Live. We donate to that, but we also donate time. So I I do some unofficial mentoring and coaching to that program. I, I speak at the conferences, and we really like supporting that biggest mistake you've made in real estate? Biggest mistake was bought a property in a extremely rough area of Fort Worth, Texas. This was before we had our screening procedure well set. So we bought it in an area that was far rougher crime-wise than we realized. And so what happened out of that meant that it was it took more money to renovate because it just kept getting destroyed and it took longer. So the headaches of doing that just wasn't worth it. And that's part of what helped drive us over to B properties versus C. And frankly, that one was a D that snuck in. What's the best place the best ever listeners can reach you? LinkedIn is good. Bigger Pockets is good. And also there's a contact us form at our website, which is just vpacq.com, short for Vantage Point Acquisitions. That goes directly to my email. And I make a point to try to respond to everyone who reaches out. Amazing. And Andrew, you'll email me those 20 questions for the property management company too, right? 
best ever listeners. I'll include that in addition to Andrew's company website in the show notes page. So you can just click through to that document and then also click through to his website to check it out. Well, Andrew, thanks so much for being on the show, sharing your insight, how you progressed from the chemical engineering background where you were completely awkward on the phone to now over 60 million in assets under management that your company has control over, as well as how you get into the syndicated deals, how you structure those, and some good deals and some not good deals and lessons learned. So thanks for being on the show. Hope you have a best ever day, and we'll talk to you soon. I appreciate it. Enjoy it. Thanks, Jeff. Best ever listeners, it is here. Well, it's almost here. February 24th and 25th, the conference, the best ever conference. Have you signed up yet? Oh, if you haven't, you better sign up right now. It's going to sell out besteverconference.com. I'm going to be there. A bunch of the guests who you've heard interviewed on the show are going to be there. Just go to besteverconference.com and look at all the speakers that you're going to hear from that will help you move your business forward in 2017. I want to meet you in person. The best ever guests who are speaking at this event want to meet you in person. And people who haven't been interviewed on this podcast who are speaking at the conference. They want to meet you in person. Go to besteverconference.com.